Good morning, everyone. There we go. We uh, will probably be gaining numbers along the way, so we might need to have some enthusiasm at the outset. Um, yeah, two parts. Um, I think there's two things the Lord would have me to share uh, with you today. Two parts. It's going to really culminate in two prayers and two practical pointers at the end. Um, it might take us a little bit of time to get there. So I'm going to give you the forest, the two parts, before uh, we start navigating through the trees. Um, if you have your Bibles, you are very welcome to turn to, uh, I'm going to be in Amos, but we are going to be in Matthew 9. So you probably want to turn to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have Bibles, there's some in the back here. But I want to read a few verses here from Amos, and then we'll be in Matthew chapter 9 right afterwards. So it's in Amos chapter 7, starts at verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold. Three verses later. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold. Three verses later. Thus he showed me, behold. And he saw a plumb line. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold. Take a look. I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And then just once more, Amos chapter 8, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold. Next verse, he said, Amos, what do you see? I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Father, I, um, I want to confess that um, I feel very distracted this morning. Um, physically not well, and um, equally aware of the fact that um, if you're not here today, Lord, this is uh, at best going to come to nothing and at worst going to be far worse. So, um, Lord, just confessing weakness at the outset, I just want to ask that the sufficiency would be of God and not of men. Um, I want to pray, Lord, that you would remove every distraction, whether physical, spiritual, or other in this place right now. Um, I'm mindful of Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And um, can I just ask that on this farmyard right now, Lord, that you would remove every spiritual hindrance, oppression, um, that which would distract us in this moment. Like uh, John 12, we wish to see Jesus. And I'm just going to add, Lord, we wish to see like Jesus in this session as well. So, um, you are able, Lord, and we're grateful for the reality of what we read last night. You're also willing. And so we look to you and look expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. So part one. I'm going to get this down. It's in my way. Part one. What do you see? This is an expression the Lord uses multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Twice there in the book of Amos. Amos, what do you see? You'll read in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, what do you see? Three times he says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see? And there's a number of other statements throughout the Old Testament where the Lord goes to one of his servants and it's almost as if he comes beside them in a certain situation or at a certain time where they had a vision and said, what do you see? And based upon their response, he always comes back a second time and he says, well, take a look. Let me show you what's actually here. Let me show you more. Let me show you what this means. Let me show you what's ahead. And so what I want us to do here this morning is um, for those who are fans of Adventure and Odyssey, we're going to step in our imagination station, as it were, at the outset here, or you can use your sanctified imagination. And I want you to imagine yourself as one of the disciples 
at the end of Matthew chapter nine. If you're someone who likes to visualize, you can close your eyes if you want, but imagine yourself about 2,000 years ago in that northern province of Galilee. Perhaps it's the Sabbath, I don't know, maybe it's a day like today, and you're in one of those Galilean open formatted synagogues. And it's not like me up here, it would have actually been the Lord Jesus as the rabbi or the teacher right in the middle, seated, and the disciples kind of in a circle around him. And you're one of the disciples in the inner circle, and you're watching and listening to the Lord Jesus. He's teaching about his father, teaching about the law. He's preaching the good news about the kingdom to come. And as he's doing that, you're just fixated on him. And suddenly you see that his, um, his gaze changes from probably a bit more nearsighted to a bit further. And the expression on his face changes from one of probably a bunch of joy and jubilation explaining about the truths of his father to uh, one that's a bit more concerned, one that looks like he's hurting a little. And you notice that as you gaze around as well, the room's a lot fuller than what you remember when you came in. Almost in every single entrance on the outside of this open formatted synagogue, you're noticing people flood in. You notice a number of them have a limp. There's even a few being carried in. You, uh, you see a lineup of people that um, are walking very slowly and being led by someone telling them exactly what, uh, what the next step is. Um, you see in one corner over there that there's a few people with uh, a lot of extra clothing on and uh, you only really see their eyes. And when anyone goes near them, you hear this Hebrew word tame repeatedly, which from your previous lessons, you know, translates to unclean. Um, you see someone else being led in and the moment they see the Lord Jesus, they uh, all of a sudden start calling him son of the most high and then have an epileptic seizure on the ground. Um, you might even see that a few people who don't have a limp and see, look, physically they're all right. They, uh, a lot of them are women. They don't make eye contact with anyone and you can tell there's some pain there as well. So imagine you're in that moment as one of the disciples and the Lord Jesus gets your attention and says, hey, what do you see? What do you see, Brad? What do you see, Victoria? I'll answer this. I won't put someone too much on the spot here. My initial response, and you can take it for whatever you want, but when I first thought of this and put myself in that moment, what do you see, Nathan? I uh, probably would have said something to the effect of, well, I see a kind of a nightmarish day at the clinic, Lord. I, uh, I see a lot of people in a lot of pain with a lot of different problems. What do you think of that answer? Is that fair? Thumbs up, accurate? I mean, take a look here. I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page in the same place. Um, Matthew 9, verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages. You cross-reference it, you find it's in the more poorer, pauv, rural area up north in Galilee. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness. That word in the Greek usually refers more to like physical infirmities, maladies, diseases, like actual physical things. And every disease, that word malachia talks about weakness or softness or debility. Outside of the New Testament, it's often used for people who we'd call mental health. Softness, weakness, problems inside among the people. Is what I'm describing to you do you see it? Is that fairly accurate? Thumbs up? Now, is that all that's going on? 
is the way that Jesus Christ sees what's going on the same way that I saw it. Let's find out. Verse 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Jeremy did a masterful job on this, so I won't even touch it, other than just to say um, the marvel of Jesus Christ, that when he sees, it's unlike me as a doc, that when I see a full waiting room, my blood pressure goes up and I'm not happy. Um, He's immediately moved. Um, That word means to feel with them. But why? What about what he saw caused him to be moved? I told you that what I see is a lot of people in a lot of pain with a lot of problems. What does Jesus Christ see? Anyone want to read the end of verse 36? That's right. He sees weary and scattered sheep having no shepherd. The uh, translation Jeremy used last night, um, harassed, helpless. One translation says harassed, helpless, and hurt. Um, Another one says distressed and dejected. And then the cross reference is restless within and rejected without. Just want to point out at the outset here that Jesus Christ doesn't see the way that you and I see. I told you the initial response I would have given is a lot of people in a lot of pain with a lot of problems. Um, As I've come to meditate on this more, and especially as I've gone through the Old Testament and repeatedly seen, what do you see, Amos? What do you see, Jeremiah? What do you see, Zechariah? It's interesting that while they tell the Lord, every time the Lord has to come again and give them a better idea of what they're actually happening. So my new answer would be, well, Lord, I see a lot of people in a lot of pain with a lot of problems, but um, that's how I see it. But I know there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. Um, Lord, what do you see? Because what I want you just to notice here is that the Lord doesn't just see people, problems, pain right here in the moment. He has a much fuller, wider perspective. Any Jewish person, which the Gospel of Matthew is predominantly written to, would have looked at this and immediately their mind would have flooded back into the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, Zechariah 10, Ezekiel 34, where God just blasts the leaders of Israel, the elders of cities, the rulers, the prophets, priests, and kings, because the people that they were responsible for, these hurting, helpless, weak, weary oppressed, suppressed people, the ones that they should have been feeding and leading and taking care of in their society, they were getting rich off of them. And it's very fascinating when you look at the context here into the New Testament, where this is probably taking place is a synagogue. You won't read that word in the Old Testament. This is something that came through the 400 silent year period as they talk about. But the idea of the synagogue after they came back from Babylon was not just a place that they would go to a school on the Sabbath, where they would hear the law being taught. It was actually designed as basically the Jewish community center. They didn't have hospitals. They didn't have hospices. They didn't have soup kitchens. This was a place where the leaders in the community voted every few years with the ruler of the synagogue. They were there, not just for Saturdays for people to hear the word of God, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other day of the week, that the needs of the people of that community of faith could be made known and taken care of. And here in this day and age, 
there's all these people who have all sorts of physical, emotional, social, spiritual, mental problems galore. Every single disease and sickness. And they have no one that's been caring for their souls. And the Lord Jesus doesn't just see them as, oh, there's somebody who's blind. Oh, there's someone over there who can't walk straight. Oh, there's someone who's weak and dejected and depressed. He sees that, but he sees the fact of all that's happened in the context leading up to that. I just want to point out two things from this that's really helped me. First one is, um, Jesus Christ doesn't see the way you and I see things. There's not a better chapter in your Bible to prove this. I'll show you. You should probably know most of the stories in Matthew chapter 9, but let's look at the first one. Just scan the chapter with me. First eight verses. We're in Capernaum. You'll know the story. The Lord Jesus is in a house that's so filled, it's so packed, standing room only, and you can't even get in the door. Four friends, quadriplegic, how are we going to do it? Let's get on the roof, crack it open, and lower them in. So right now, if all of a sudden, as I'm up here speaking, rip and a body comes down, what do you see? Quadriplegic dude, a distraction. Some of us might like try to cast out the devil as a distraction in the middle of the word of God being taught, right? What does Jesus see? Look at verse two of Matthew nine. When Jesus saw their faith, he sees the guy, but he sees the faith of the four friends. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Later that day, as they're making their way out of Capernaum, take a look at verse nine. He happens to go by a tax collector's office and he sees a guy by the name of Matthew. Now, if you took a look at Matthew that day, what would you see? Traitor, lover of money more than lover of man, willing to sell out his entire people to make a few bucks off Rome. What does Jesus see? He says, follow me. He's a future disciple. Turned out pretty well. We have a whole gospel that uh, kind of validates what he saw there. Um, let's keep going. Uh, you can look down at about verse 18. We know the story. He goes over to the country of the Gadarenes. The man who has a legion of demons cast out comes back over. And the whole crowd's there, including a guy by the name of Jarius, who has a 12-year-old daughter who just died. Lord, come to my house. He's interrupted on the way because there's a woman who's actually had an issue for 12 years, who touches him. We know the story. Immediately that's dried up, taken care of, but the Lord stops it. And eventually this woman's isolated. Now, if you're one of the disciples, looking at this woman who stopped the whole procession to go off and deal with a 12-year-old girl who just died, like that seems pretty acute for a chronic issue. What would you look at and see that woman as? Selfish? Preoccupied with herself? Maybe little faith? She wasn't even willing to call out? What does Jesus see? Verse 22, turns around, saw her, and tells her, your faith has made you well. He sees faith. Next verse, when you show up at Jairus' house and see a 12-year-old girl lying there, probably cold, motionless, pale, see a bunch of people weeping, what do you see? Death, despair, funeral beginning. What does Jesus see? Verse 24, just asleep. You keep going through the chapter. Even when he goes and sees blind Bartimaeus and his friend who's never named, gives them their sight back. You look at verse 30 and he says, see, now how would you finish that sentence? Because what I would say is go see and tell absolutely everyone in the nation that I just opened blind eyes. It's one of the signs of the Messiah. Everyone will come to me, get saved. He says, see, 
that no one knows it. I just want you to notice, Jesus doesn't see the way that we do. And when you come to the end of this chapter, you and I, if we were in that moment looking around at all these people with all their problems and all of their pain, we would not see them in terms of what's happened in the past. The way I see them, as I see them in my office every day, is their present issue. I'll tell you, beloved, the way that I look at people is not the way Jesus Christ does. Just to give you some unnamed example, I see the 22-year-old drug addict that comes in, tracks up the arm living on the street in our town, begging me to somehow release their opioids a few days early. And I see a 22-year-old drug addict. I see a a 35-year-old mother of three come into the office, three different fathers for her three children, and now she's in telling me she's found a new man, and I see various bruises of different stage, and I see a 35-year-old foolish woman making the same mistake again. Guy in his mid-50s who comes into the clinic, disheveled, not well-kept, only comes in in the very crisis of life, um, doesn't smell particularly good, and I see a guy who's got to get his life together. But as I've grown a little bit, I say, Lord, here's what I see. What do you see? And sure enough, in the moments that follow, I see that that 22-year-old drug addict um, was once a two-year-old lovely little child who uh, had some horrific things done to them and repeatedly done to them. And they started on substances to deal with the physical and emotional pain at a young age. And I see that that 35-year-old single mother of three is um, one who uh, never knew her dad and mom was on substance and at about age three started went into foster care and bounced from home to home. Some of those homes, parents didn't even remember her name because she was not in long enough. Never told that she was loved, never met her father and now has been looking nonstop for a man who will love her and treat her like a princess she's always wanted. I see that guy in the 50s and I see him as a guy who's got his life together then uh, the Lord helps me to see that he once was a guy in his mid-twenties who did have his life together. But um, his wife pulled a Samson, as it were, and uh, left him and went with his best friend. And the only way to deal with it is go off-grid and hide and never face what just happened. Now, it doesn't take away the guilt before God. It doesn't take away the sin in their life. But all of a sudden, my condemnation of them all of a sudden changes perspective, doesn't it? From one of what's wrong with you to, like the Lord Jesus, a heart melting full of compassion. Jesus Christ doesn't just see the present, but he sees the past. He sees the whole picture. He's got the impeccable insight, if you want. 2020 spiritual vision clear, complete clarity to know the past, to know the context, to know everything going on. And so when he's there in the synagogue at the end of Matthew 9, and these quite frankly down and outers that come in, there was no EIA and there was no uh, COVID-19 government payments in that day, you could rest assured. These people were impoverished. They were scarred. They had issues. There was no rich young ruler or well-off Sanhedrin member showing up that day, I can assure you. But he looked at them and yes, sin. 
and sorrow and suffering, but he also saw the past and the people that they had looked to as their leaders had forsaken them. Weary, weak, scattered, harassed, hurting, helpless sheep. And it's that perspective that immediately we begin to understand why his heart just melted. And as Jeremy said, I'll give you the Greek word, spagnosomahi, which basically means that the bowels churn. You know, like the gut punch? It doesn't just, as we're taught as doctors, to feel for patients, have empathy. I can see how that's hard for you. No, no, he felt with them because he had become a man and had, could feel with them. Jesus Christ doesn't see the way that we see. He sees fuller, bigger, better, wider, deeper, past and present. And um, if you want one more piece of just help, just notice that he saw those people. One of the great joys to me as you look through scripture is the fact that um, one of the first times you'll see a, a name for God, it's Genesis 16. There uh, could have been a teenage girl who just got awkwardly into a geriatric relationship with 85-year-old Abraham. And uh, she's in the family way and uh, runs away because it doesn't go so well with her 75-year-old uh, boss, Sarai. And um, she's off crying in the wilderness in a very desperate state. And who sees her? And she gives that, truly you are the God who sees. It's, a, it's actually a marvel that later when she's off with her teenage son many years later, um, it's not just the God who sees, but while well, she thinks that they're about to starve to death and have no thirst, that the God who sees also is the God who shows them a well. That's point two, by the way. But throughout the life of Jesus Christ, you will see that he is the God who sees. Anyone else see little Zacchaeus up in a tree that day? Jesus did. Anyone else take notice of that uh, poor widow that only had two coins with her? Jesus are. Anyone else, when you're fleeing the scene of the temple because everyone wants to stone you, going to stop by and see a guy born blind from birth? Jesus saw him. And what I just want to say with the first point here is, yes, what we might see could be fair, could be accurate, but it's not full. It's not all that's going on there. And as much as we need the compassion of Christ and praying for the heart of Christ, it's intricately linked with the eyes, the sight, or the word I'm using today, the vision of Jesus Christ. Not just to see the outward appearance and what's on the surface, but to see the depth, to see the past, to see everything that's led up to that point. Because the heart of Christ melted based upon what he was seeing. And it's a needful thing for us to not make these snap judgments and look at a drug addict or a single mom making the same mistake again, but to see as he would have us see. To be in those moments and say, Lord, what do you see here? What's actually going on? And it's amazing how when you see that, the, uh, the heart of Christ that's already been implanted in us isn't quite as cold as perhaps we think it is. I'll give you just, yeah, some of you will be wondering why we're calling this weekend the harvest is truly plentiful while being in uh, 2022, Port Perry, Manitoba. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I, uh, I look out on social media, I, uh, I see the mainstream media, and I probably see it very similar to many of you. Right? I see a society here in the West that if we're not at the end of Romans 1, we're fast on our way. Secular revolution is given to a sexual revolution, to a homosexual revolution, and we are in a reprobate society where people can't think straight. 
right? We have uh, entire departments at universities called women's studies, and none of the profs can even define what a w woman is, right? Professing ourselves to be wise, we're utter fools. I read Proverbs 30 this morning and said, huh, that sounds a lot like the generation I'm seeing raised up. A wicked and perverse generation doesn't bless its father, curses its mother, high and lifted up in its own sight, yet not washed from its own filthiness. Teeth are like fangs. I just thought cancel culture. Right, we're in a Canadian context right now that I don't want to overblow this, but like what our government is putting into law and what they're saying in light of even just the most recent, say, um, overturn of Roe versus Wade. I mean, Isaiah 5 comes to mind. Darkness and light. We call things that are darkness light and light darkness. We call things that are bitter sweet and sweet bitter. We call things that are evil good and good evil. Like, don't think that we're in a Christian culture right now. Anyone seeing this differently? Right? I think when I go before the Lord and he asks me, what do you see in the culture, in society right now? Um, I don't think we're far off pulling those texts. If you disagree, we'll have lunch today. But is that all? Is that the full perspective? Is that everything that's going on? And one of the things that the Lord has increasingly shown me in the past couple years is, okay, Nathan, that's what you see. But do you want to know what I'm seeing here? And sure enough, I um, find that the person who's so loud and proud, you'll know where I'm going with this on social media and in public, is uh, also the person that's showing up to the doctor's office asking for the third antidepressant because nothing is filling the longing of their soul. And um, the person who's championed around as a teenage bold individual um, for taking that bold step and uh, realigning themselves according to their gender identity is also the one who's been lied from a young age about gender fluidity and um, is questioning whether or not it's worth going on. And down the list you go that you find out there are many outcasts, oppressed, suppressed, lied to, leaderless, loved, not loved, overlooked people all around us that at first glance we shake our head, but when we look and ask the Lord to actually show us what's there, we see there's so much more. And so first part, first prayer, first thing I would just exhort you is add the prayer, Lord, what do you see? to your day-in, day-out life. Lord, what do you see here at the workforce? Because they're pretty rude and crude and hopeless and evil individuals. But Lord, what do you see here? And Lord, what do you see in my neighborhood? And Lord, what do you see um, in the church? And Lord, what do you see in my ministry? And Lord, what do you see? Um, I won't take the time for it. You can have lunch with me if you want. But this was like the most helpful thing in the world when I first moved to Portage seven or eight years ago because the Lord did show me a few things. Even more, many of you will know about Discipleship Week two years ago here in Portage, where, yeah, fruit still remains of many people saved, 19 people baptized in eight days, all of those things. Can I tell you that if I hadn't, if the Lord had not changed my vision and how I saw things two or three months beforehand, that week would not have happened. It's not just what do you see, but changing in our repertoire to saying, okay, quickly, Lord, what do you see? That's part one. But I want you to just notice as well as we move on, um, that's not everything the Lord saw, is it? 
Take a look at verse 37. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time, part two. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. Again, imagine you're there. It's almost like they're all staring and seeing all of these people around. And the Lord says, okay, you see this? Are you taking a look? You see all these blind people and people that can't see and can't walk and have all sorts of troubles and don't look like the uh, upper middle class that we'd like to associate with. The harvest truly is plentiful. It's not just that he sees their past and present and has the full perspective. He also sees, maybe I'll just put it this way, he sees the potential. He sees the opportunity. He sees the opening. There's no doubt the Lord's looking through the eyes of faith. There's no doubt the Lord already knew James 2 before it was written that God chooses the poor of this world to be rich in faith. There's no doubt that he's got 1 Corinthians 1 on his mind that has yet to be written, that it's the, uh, the not many noble, not many wise, basically the not many and the uh, kind of overlooked and the we are not crowd that God tends to do some uh, amazing things with so that he gets all the glory. Perhaps he'd just been teaching them the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek. Blessed are the pure in heart, poor in spirit. Because those are the people that are going to inherit and actually see God. But what I want you just to notice, it wasn't just that the Lord saw them and felt bad about their circumstance. He also saw them and he pulls out the agriculture analogy here and says, do you see this? Here's a ripe harvest of ready hearts. Here's a bumper crop, guys. Right? Here are a bunch of people willing to come to me, wanting to be led, wanting to be fed, wanting to be shepherded. Oh, the opportunity, the opening. Do you see what can happen here? And it wouldn't be the usual crowd that you and I would think that there'd be great opportunity with, hey? By the way, the Lord says almost something identical one other place in the Gospels. Where? Starts with a John and ends with a four. Very good, Nate. You get the theologian points this time. You can turn there if you want. But do you remember the story in John chapter four? The last time the disciples had seen Jesus, he had looked just trashed physically, just out of it. He needed, it was noon, heat of the day. They just marched probably 22 or 23 miles, depending on where you're looking at. And he's sitting beside a well just out of it. And they went into town to get food. And then they come back and all of a sudden, Jesus is like physically wired, excited, full of life and enthusiasm. And you can just imagine, like I'm using my sanctified imagination here, but like Peter's probably like, um, Andrew, did you give him something to eat? James, did you? Like, Lord, did you have like a granola bar or two tucked under your tunic that we didn't know about? And what does the Lord say to him? My food is to do the will of my father and to finish his work. And they're confused. Do you remember what he says to them next? He says, lift up your eyes. I don't know, it's verse 36-ish, I think. Behold, lift up your eyes. Take a look, guys. Yeah, I know we just came from down in the south. We just came from Passover. I know it's March or April. Don't say it's four months until the harvest. Look at the fields. Look what's happening here they are ripe or white unto harvest. Now that sounds really mystical and crazy until we understand the context of, first of all, where is Jesus? What geographical region? And what did he just done? Talk to who? Talk to some woman that women don't go to the well at noon unless no other women want to go to the well with them. She had five guys. Now the sixth one she's not even married to. 
And what is that woman doing at the same time Jesus is talking to his disciples? She's in town talking to men saying, come see a man. And I'm sure, because if you read it carefully, I am certain when those guys actually look up at what's going on, what's coming towards them right out of town? There's a whole flood of Samaritans coming to check them out. Now I'll remind you, to the Jew, the only thing worse than being a Gentile dog was being a Samaritan swine. Like, these were people who were the original cult. These were the half-breeds. These are the people we'd have nothing to do with. And yet Jesus Christ saw ahead of time, I must be at that well by noon. I must see this woman who no one would want to see or talk to. She had quite a sinful and sketchy past. And I must be there in Samaria. Because there's a whole bumper crop of ripe harvest of people ready. I just want you to see again, it's not just the fact that Jesus has perfect perception in the here and now impeccable insight, but also full foresight into what's to come. He sees the opportunities, he sees the potential, he sees the open doors, as it were. I'll just borrow a pun from Mackenzie this morning. And here's the marvel of what I want us to talk about the rest of our time. He's willing to show it. Revelation 3, if you will. I'm going to give you the theory, and depending on whether you want to to actually get our feet dirty on ground level, we can do it. But I'm just going to give you the theory. I'll show it to you, and then depending on how much stamina we have, um, I can give you a few things on the ground as well. But part one, Lord, what do you see in the here and now? In this circumstance, in this situation, when I'm at work, when I'm under a tent, when I'm in my neighborhood, what do you see, Lord? But here's the next part. Lord, it's not just that you see perfectly in the past and present, but you know the end from the beginning. Lord, what do you want to show? What do you want me to see about what's ahead? I'm going to read you a little passage here in Revelation 3 and kind of explain to you how helpful this has been to me. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Just pause there. Um, Who's this, by the way? Sunday school answer, come on. If you, good, if you, Mark probably has a red letter version and can cheat that way. But yeah, this is a very real letter dictated by a very real resurrected Jesus to a very real group of Christians in the first century AD. Like they actually got this letter delivered to them and says, here's what Jesus says to your church. Crazy. And... We find out he who opens and no one shuts and he who shuts and no one opens. Look at verse eight. This is what he says to all the churches. I know your works. What's the next word after that in verse eight? I know your works. See. Some translations say behold. I have something I want you to see that I'm going to show you. Marvel, all throughout scripture. If you have a question about whether the Lord wants us to see the way he does, just follow the behold statements of the New Testament. Remarkable. And what does Jesus want to show, or what does he want this group of Christians to see as a church in Philadelphia in the first century AD? I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Lest I ever become the hero in my own stories, so please beware of someone who always gives you the good and not the bad. Um, 
let me just give you the context here to explain why this has been so helpful to me. I just want to give you the theory. Hopefully it's helpful to you, and then we can get ground level if you want. But, um, so I've been saved 23, 24 years now. Um, if someone shortly after me getting saved said, one day you'll be a speaker at a conference called The Harvest is Truly Plentiful, um, I would have melted. For the first decade of my Christian life, if you were to talk about the subject of evangelism or outreach or sharing your faith or being a witness, whatever term you want to use, um, if there's one word to describe me in that context for the first decade, um, fear. And I don't mean just like, ooh, that's a little bit uncomfortable. I mean like physically unwell, fear and trepidation, petrified, where's the nearest bathroom? Now, it didn't help that when I thought of evangelism, I thought the only thing you could do was either preach, like in the open square or behind a pulpit, or knock on doors. Um, if, if you uh, think of that, you should probably go to Aaron's session this afternoon. He'll help you uh, see this a bit wider. But um, terrified. And anything that I ever did was just guilt and shame. The, the day will declare it maybe otherwise, but that was that. Now, praise God, I didn't stay there. Sometime in my early 20s, um, what the Lord says in Matthew 4.19, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. That's my testimony. I began to actually follow and enjoy the Lord. And I found that um, when I feared God, the fear of men went down. And actually, as I got closer to God, I started having the love of God and perfect love casts out that fear. It's not that I'm fearless, but less terrified. And yet, if you were to ask me what the next decade or so as it related to evangelism and outreach looked like in my life, less um, fear and more, we'll alliterate it, frustration. And I don't mean like, man, this isn't going too well. I mean like hit my head repeatedly against a wall, pounding headache, like getting nowhere, right? Um, some big community event, some um, Saturday farmer's market or some sort of uh, football game. Well, here's the chance to get out there with the gospel, nothing move out here to Portage and say, well, not everyone goes to church every week, but like Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas, they'll show up, right? So we'll have all sorts of events. Nothing happens. I remember the Easter before COVID, so I guess 2019, um, I just threw in the towel. I'd heard through the grapevine, seen on social media, all sorts of things that everyone was looking for a church to go to on Easter. I worked that weekend, but I invited everyone I could think of, had organized like the best guy I could think of who's an evangelist to do it in a family-friendly way, um, organized the meal, everything, and I was able to get off work just in time to show up at the end of it, and I looked around, and there wasn't a single person who was there who wouldn't have been there on a normal Sunday night. Bang your head against the wall. And it's in that context that the Lord showed me a few places. I'll use this as the place that I saw it. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, the wonderful truth of verse seven, and especially what he says in verse eight, see Nathan, or in this context, Church of Philadelphia, I have set before you an open door. Um, whose job is it to open doors that no man can shut? Thank you, that's good. And um, who is able to shut the doors that Jesus opens? Yeah, no one. I don't need your creativity. I don't need your ingenuity. I don't need your plans. I don't need you to be a visionary. What I want is you actually to have my vision. To see what I want to show you, maybe we'll make this rhyme, to see what I show, and then you must go. Right? What is an open door? It's simply 
a portal or a gateway or an access point into a new area that you can't get to otherwise. Like if you think of, oh, yeah, I won't, I won't belabor this too much. Other than to say, when Jesus first introduces the church, he says, I'll build my church. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That last statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's uh, allusion to warfare, spiritual warfare. That we who are part of Christ's called out company are also part of his army. And um, by the way, in ancient warfare, gates, um, when do gates come into play when you're in a war? Like, is it when they're coming and attacking you and you get your shield up and they're coming at you with gates? No. Gates come when you're on the attack. When you're going to a city that you want to liberate and get all those captives out and actually add them to his building and become part of his army. The idea is that Christ church is on the offense. We're going out. And um, satanic strongholds that may have very thick walls, Jesus knows where the access points are. And he'll open those gates if we want to go through them. And the very people who are um, children of wrath and under disobedience, he'll become children of light. And they'll become the living stones of which he'll build his church. And if there's one thing we learn from the resurrected, risen Lord Jesus Christ is that um, shut doors aren't a problem for him. Um, The first day of his resurrection on a Sunday night, the disciples are all shut together. Every door's locked and who shows up? Jesus. And a week later, who does it again? Jesus. He knows the access points. He says in Revelation 1, I got the keys to death and hell. And here he says, look, I know where the openings are. I know where the access points. I know where the opportunities are. I don't need your ingenuity. I don't need your creativity. I don't need your hard work. What I need you is to see the way that I see it and go where I show. I can't tell you how helpful this has been, how freeing it's been, and I don't think it's surprising that we've seen a bit more fruit in the past few years. Question one, Lord, what do you see? Question two, Lord, what do you want to show? Now we can pause it there, or um, we can get really down ground level and a bit dirty if you want. because the natural thing is going to say, thanks, Nathan. That was helpful. That's true. Amen. Never man saw like Jesus Christ. Sees perfectly in the here and now. He's also got full foresight in what's to come. He sees the opportunities. He sees the open doors. And yeah, I see that he wants to show us these things. Um, but then Monday or Tuesday comes. How do we know if something's actually an open door? How do we know if that promotion opportunity at work that came out of left field is actually an open door from him? How do we know if the invite to a new ministry or if Mackenzie comes and starts recruiting you for YFC is actually of the Lord or just Mackenzie's needing some extra workers? Are there any characteristics you might find in scripture of what open doors might look like? Any features, any things that consistently come up that may actually give us some, I don't know, confirmation that you're on the right track or that we didn't just drink too much caffeine one morning and are really excited? I'm not going to say I'll give you the full answer, but I, do you want a little list? Would it be helpful? I'm getting a few smiles. The fact that no one's fleeing is a good sign. Okay, I'll give you a few what I'll call characteristics or expectations of open doors, because um, what you're going to find is they may not be what you think they are. 
in the same way that uh, the people that Jesus says, here's a, a plentiful harvest, here's a huge opportunity, we would look at and say, uh, those people, Lord? Um, I want to also suggest to you that the open doors and opportunities and potentials that the Lord wants to bring you into might not really feel the way you think they do. And uh, the key is to understand, whenever you read open door in the New Testament, just keep reading and you'll find out that it's a little bit different. So um, example one, church in Philadelphia. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Well, why do you do that? Some translations say because, mine says for. You have a little strength. Wasn't expecting that, hey? Like again, let's get in our imagination station. It's helpful when we read the word of God to actually actively engage our minds. So imagine you were a believer, first century AD in Asia Minor, and you're told a week from now, the Lord's gonna send out a whole list of seven letters to the seven churches on the main postal route there on the uh, west coast of Asia Minor. You know all these churches. Now, I'm just going to give you a heads up, a little bit of a taste. One of those seven churches, Jesus is going to set an open door before, that they have a huge opportunity for the gospel, huge potential, tons of people can get saved. Which of the seven churches would you um, put last on that list? I'm going to guess Philadelphia. Like, if you study them all and take a look in their context... Out of all the churches, the one that you'd least expect to have the opportunity and open door there would be Philadelphia. It was a has-been city. A hundred years earlier, impressive. At this point in history, what was once called Little Athens is just little. Huge earthquake came through in the first century, first half of the first century, and Rome decided to rebuild, but anyone who had money left because taxes went sky high. And for the church there, you got to piece it together and read a little bit in contrast with chapter two, but you find out they've just gone through a really hard time. Um, some of the faithful brothers and sisters uh, who they knew and loved, um, they still knew and loved, but they'd have to meet in glory. Um, It's very likely that there's only maybe a few families left. Yes, faithful, have kept the word, but they're probably not having a church building and posting when their conferences are. And you would think if the message came, there's going to be a bit of a reprieve from the persecution coming your way. um, You would think naturally, intuitively, this would be the church that would say, okay, you've been faithful. You can rest and refresh now. You can recoup and regroup, right? Um, Maybe in time, once you get back up on your feet, you can start doing a bit of outreach and things like that. And yet, which church does Jesus say, I've got an open door in front of you? It's Philadelphia, and why? Little strength. You're weak. We often talk about how we want to know the ways of God. Here's one of them. When you're weak... You're actually strong because it's his strength that's going to perfect. Like, why did God choose Israel in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 7, 7. Was it because they were the biggest and most numerous of all the nations? You were the least likely. Why did God choose Gideon to lead his army against the Midianites? Hiding at night. Weakest man of the weakest clan and the least in all of his family. And even when he got 32,000 people, God says, it's too many. Let's get that down to 300. And here's your weapons. Um, A lamp and uh, a sword, which many of you won't know to use. In the New Testament, Jesus accomplished the greatest opening and potential ever by being crucified in weakness. We we make much of Paul an apostle, but um, you know what the Corinthians were kind of fleshly looked at him and said, uh, your bodily presence is weak and your speech kind of sucks. It's contemptible. This is the message all throughout scripture. 
And what I want to tell you is what I am learning, have yet to fully learn, but my experience of seeing open doors with the Lord is the times that you feel the weakest and have the least people and the fewest number is actually the time where there's that opening. I could tell you, many of you know, when we first came out here eight, seven, eight years ago, we came to a church with 11 people and the Lord grew that a week later to eight people. One sister was promoted to glory and two others moved away that week. Little strength, but they had been faithful and the Lord slowly grew it. Open door. Maybe a better example, Better Way Brandon, last summer, the month of July. The Lord had clearly led us for a month. We'd been praying for the city. The Lord brought 12 or 15 people from across Canada. There was maybe another 15 local believers, 15 or so from here. And you say, oh, we got a big number. Day one of the outreach, as we're under the tent on the farmyard, I just said to everyone, I said, how many of you here would, um, yeah, put your hand up if you are flying high. If maybe the last three to six months, full of strength on mountaintop victories with the Lord Jesus, just feeling filled with the spirit, you're coming in here on cloud nine. Anyone know how many hands went up? Rhymes with hero. Zilch, zero. Then I said, how many of you feel terrible? The last three to six months have been the hardest journey of your life. You're still in a valley. You're only out of here because, you're only here because you feel compelled to be here, not because you want to be here. Almost every hand went up. It was a ragtag team, and that was what we said was going to be our theme. Simplicity and sincerity were not much, but... Sure enough, you look back and say, our God is much. And so one of the characteristics of when you think an open door, it's not necessarily the time that you feel you're full of strength and full of energy. It's very often when it's the lowest point and you have little strength and then you're going to find his strength sufficient. That's one. I'll give you another one and we'll see what we have for time from there. Um, yeah, let's go over and talk about another of those seven churches. We just got to go a bit back in history. First uh, Chronicle or First Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. I won't make it a sword drill here, but I'll read verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 16. I hear pages continuing to turn, which means I'll just delay for a second. Okay. But I will tarry in Ephesus. So that's Paul there in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why is he tarrying? Verse 9. A great and effective door has been opened to me. Again, did Paul open the door? Who opened the door? Yeah, whenever you see that word effective, the Greek word is energized or energeo. It almost inclusively speaks of God. Great in terms of scope, energized by the Lord. But what I want you to tell you again is when you see an open door in scripture, we say, that's awesome. Keep reading. And there are many friends, encouragements, accolades, people along with me saying, this is wonderful. No, what does it say? There are many adversaries. Any fans here of Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, I'll, I'll quiz you here. So when Christian, late one day, he's tired, just can't wait to get a place of refuge, a place to rest, comes around the corner and there it is, the palace beautiful, the perfect place for him to spend the night. Um, and then he sets his gaze down to the one open door into the palace beautiful. What's waiting there right in front of him? Anyone know? Shania knows. Two lions. And he's terrified. Then the porter calls out from the house saying they're on chains and slowly but surely he makes his way through. Um, I want you to get that in your mind when you think of open doors in scriptures. Like, think of it this way. 
if you are on a defensive city and we have got everything fortified so that no one can get in, but there's someone who can hit a button and all of a sudden your front doors are wide open and you can't close them, what's your only tactic to try to defend yourself? It's scare the living snot out of anyone to even come near. Don't even approach. Don't even think about it. Fear, intimidation. Like this is called scare tactics 101. And might I suggest to you that's a very common theme with open doors in scriptures. You can go back to the Old Testament when the whole army of Assyria shows up on Israel or Jerusalem's front door and King Hezekiah has got the people sold saying the Lord is telling us to withstand and there comes Sennacherib's um, Rabshakeh to come and basically speaks to them in Hebrew and uh, goes on to tell them like, no one has ever withstood us. Like you are insane. Why? It's to melt the heart of all the people. I just want to remind you everyone that um, when you are in the spirit and using the word of God and encounter the devil, who runs? He flees. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. He's on a leash, read Job. But he also goes around like a roaring lion trying to intimidate and scare. And in the case, you can read this if you want later in Acts 19, but there's Paul, open door, finally the church after three years, the word had gone everywhere, but the problem was in the church, they confessed their idolatry. They came openly told, they burnt all of their magic books and it says the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Next verse, the whole city goes crazy. Hundreds of thousands of people for multiple hours yelling, great is Ephesian or Diana of the Ephesians. And if you want to just know, just so it's not like, oh, Paul's saying like, I'm really super spiritual and I can sense spiritual opposition. Go to the next chapter. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter one. I just want you to read this and understand that this is not just like some pie in the sky and like, oh, this is a little bit tough. 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse eight. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, who are in Corinth, of our trouble when we were in Asia, capital city, Ephesus, We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we even despaired of life. Um, God won't give you more than you can handle, but the devil's more than happy to add on that load. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. AKA, we just thought we were dead and what God was gonna do is raise us from the dead. Like we were as good as done. But he did deliver us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping in prayer. Like Paul was no... um, wuss, if I can use that term. Read uh, 2 Corinthians and his list of beatings and things along the way. It wasn't that all of a sudden he was just like a little bit scared. When there's great and effective doors, wide, huge openings, opportunities, it's going to attract the adversary's attention. What's he going to do? He can't close the door, so what's he going to do? Scare the living snot out of us so we don't want to approach it. I've been part of a group of Christians back in my former days in Winnipeg that had that. Um, Just personally, I can tell you, I told you a little bit about Better Way Brandon. A month before Better Way Brandon last year, I think it was the very day that we were about to finalize an order on 30,000 tracks and 20,000 of something else and say, we're going full forward. Knock on the door of my clinic office. Of course, this is pandemic, so it's virtual visits mostly. I'm on the phone and just have my stuff sprawled out in my office clinic room. And uh, not even an answer before storming through the doors, the clinic CEO, who's kind of new to the group and has never talked to me before, throws all the tracks that I had at that time all over me. Are these yours? And it didn't help at the time that on the, uh, the, the patient bed, I had those tracks sitting there. And um, just berated me. 
and said, do you know how many complaints we've had about this? Do you know all the problems that like liabilities? All your colleagues know, I can't do it, but they're going to report you to the college and your license might be getting pulled. Storms out. My blood pressure was probably pretty high at the moment and it took me a, a long time in prayer before the Lord gave me the expression, just bark, no bite. But what is that? Uh, everything within me wanted to crawl in a hole and never order a gospel track and cancel all of Brandon plans. This year, the last day I had before going to Winnipegosis for all of that, that hadn't been, Kevin Wojtowicz is here, I'd get you to ask him. He said he's never been part of a team that had that much resistance, opposition heading into it. Same thing. Um, different details, different things, but two hours before I'm about to be done and ready to go for that. Um, terror. Scare tactic. Someone comes to my office and tells me things. By the way, this weekend has had a bit of that too. And the tendency in yourself is to crawl in a ball and say the Lord's not part of this. The Lord always gives perfect peace. We won't go to it, but if you go to chapter two, verse 13, the next open door you see in Troas, what Paul says is I had no rest in my spirit. Rest and peace sometimes has to get fought for when you're in spiritual opposition. But just recognize, I won't give you more of them. You can go study them, but take a look at the open doors in scripture. And what you were gonna find is after the Lord shows you an open door, what inevitably happens afterwards is you feel, I'm very weak, I have little strength. Man, there's a lot of resistance and opposition here. I have no rest in my spirit. I wanna be somewhere else. I don't know, is this really the Lord? You'll read about Paul doing that. And um, you'll even see some division associated with it when you go through the book of Acts. I'll wrap this up and we can go for lunch, but Ephesians chapter one. For those of you just joining us, there's two parts to what we've called here the, um, the vision or the sight or the eyes of Christ. Uh, the first part, not just what do I see, but Lord, what do you see? In the here and now, in this moment, in this setting, in this situation, here's what I see, Lord, but what do you see? And so often we find out he sees so much wider and deeper and fuller and actually looks at the people that I would have overlooked and not seen. But the second part, Lord, what do you want to show? What would you have me see? Where are the openings? Where are the opportunities? Where's the potential? And so often it's... um not the place I would have looked. It's not the people group I would have looked at. It's not the, uh, the we are something crowd, but it's the we are not. And so often, immediately after I see it, I start questioning and it doesn't feel like I saw what I'm supposed to go and do. Never man saw, spoke like Jesus, John 7. I'll say never man saw like Jesus Christ, but here's the bigger question then. You say, this is all good, Nathan. Thank you for some of these uh, little nuggets. Um, but how do we actually see? Right? How do we actually see through the eye of faith? How do we see the unseeable? We're involved in spiritual warfare that though it's very real and very much there, it's not visible. How do we see these things? Two practical pointers I want to give you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore, I also, this is Paul, led by the Spirit of God writing this, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, pause there for a second. Um, when we talk about faith, is it um, something we do with our hands? Is it something that we just intellectually agree with? Where's uh, faith predominantly seen in scripture? 
And uh, love, where's that predominantly dealt with in scripture? We agree, heart? So here's what Paul says. Therefore, you Christians in Ephesus, after I heard of your faith and love, basically your heart towards God and towards others. So I hear that you at least have the heart of Jesus Christ. After that, here's what I did, verse 16. I don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, the beginning of verse 17, that. Basically here, after I've seen that you've had and heard that you have the heart of Christ, here's what I began to do. I started pleading for you. I started praying for you. I started asking for you. I started requesting for you. This seems so simple, doesn't it? But if you want to actually see what Jesus Christ sees and see what he would have you show, you know what step one might be a good one? Ask. Like, it's so simple. James 4, 2, we quote it all the time, but you have not because you ask not. You ever notice in the life of Jesus Christ um, how this worked itself out pretty nicely? Like, if you were a religious leader or a legal expert in those days, Jesus kept calling them blind leaders of the blind. Like he chews them out in Luke chapter 12 and comes to them and says like, guys, you can look at the sky in the evening and kind of figure out what the weather's coming tomorrow, but you have the word of God. You have me. You can look around here and you can't quite figure out what's going on. Why? You go to the end of John 9 and you find it's because you say you see and you don't. That's why you're blind and your sin remains. Meanwhile, Every single physically blind person who ever encountered Jesus Christ and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, I might receive my sight. You know what happened? They received their sight. Each one was different, by the way. The only common denominator was Christ. One of them was they go, someone like partial and then full, someone else, the Lord touched them, then they saw. But every person that came to Jesus and said, I can't physically see, you want to help me with that? You know what the answer was? Okay. Oh, and by the way, spiritually, when his disciples came to him, every time that they came to him and said, spiritually, we kind of see, but we don't see. um, Did he chew them out? Um, Lord, we noticed you started using a lot of these things called parables. Um, What's going on there? And he explains them so that seeing they may see, but not perceive. Oh, well, what about that first one about the soils? And he explains it. What about that second one with the wheat and the tares? I mean, read the upper room ministry and all it is is over and over them asking questions of like, where are you going? Uh, we don't know the way, help us see the way, show us the Father. And even at the end of John 16, it's hilarious because they think they've asked too many questions. The Lord says, you want to ask, don't you? Let me tell you. And their conclusion is like, now we see that you're speaking plainly, not figuratively. Now we see and know that you know all things. Ask that you might receive and your joy will be full. All throughout scripture, we have a God that doesn't just want to speak but he wants to show. Take a look at all the beholds. Take a look at all the seas. Take a look at all the look, lift up your eyes. The same God of Jeremiah and Zechariah and Amos is the same God today. To Jeremiah, that he says, what do you see, Jeremiah? He also says, call unto me and I'll answer. I will show you great things which you have not seen before. David's prayer in Psalm 13, consider, O hero, Lord, enlighten my eyes. Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might see. And one of the wonders, same book, we started in Amos, I won't go there, but Amos 3, 7, the Lord does nothing unless he first shows his servants what he's about to do. Ask. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 17 and I'll close with this. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Whatever you think of different translations, I'll give you one that I think captures it pretty well. I always pray to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, asking that he would grant you a spirit of wisdom. Always good to have the wisdom to know what to do before you're showing. And revelatory insight through a deep and intimate knowledge of him so that the eyes of your heart will be flooded with his illuminating light to see the hope of your calling. Revelatory insight from God comes through a deep and intimate relationship with God. I'll say it a different way. A deep and intimate knowledge, a love relationship with the Lord will lead to your eyes being enlightened. Whatever term you want to use for deep and intimate, I don't care. You can use fellowship, friendship, communion, closeness, affinity, affection, proximity, nearness, whatever you want. A living love relationship with the living God. This is kind of like, but a whole lot more like when my wife and I are clicking and we walk into a store and there's four or five paintings up there, which one do you like? And if we're clicking, I immediately can see the one because I'm seeing the way that she's seeing. But I want to say it's even more than that. It's not just like we're in tune with God that we see. This is actually him granting us who are spiritually blind his vision. Those whom he most closely knows, I'll rhyme it, he also tends to show. Shall I hide from my friend Abraham what I'm about to do? Moses, he's not like all these other servants. He's one that sees me face to face. I speak to him plainly. Perhaps the best example in the Old Testament is a guy named Daniel. Goes to a foreign land after being taken away from the city of God to a different city. And he says, I'm not going to be defiled. I'm going to follow my Lord. I know him. And he can see the meat that's offered to him and says, I can't eat that. If you want better insight, go to the next year. At first year at Babylon U, he can see into a man's dream and interpret it. And says, there's a God out there who reveals and shows things. And 50, 60 years later, still praying three times a day to the Lord, enjoying fellowship with him. Um, who's given um, insight, foresight, vision about um, the next, I don't know, thousand years of Western civilization as well as the whole future of Israel? With intimacy comes revelation. In the New Testament, there's one disciple above all other disciples whom said that, whom Jesus loved. And... Um, it wasn't so much that Jesus chose him, but I think he chose Jesus. As in, when he's in the upper room, he's making sure he's laying right next to the Lord. And uh, even though it's terrifying, he's making sure that if the Lord's on trial behind closed doors, he's going to find a way in there. And uh, most terrifying, even if oh, I wouldn't want to be at the cross, but if the Lord said, follow me, I'll be there. Um, which disciple was the, not the first one to see the empty tomb, but the first one it says to see with understanding and believe that Jesus was resurrected? Perfect insight for the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which was the uh, one of the seven that was in the boat that could see a man on shore calling out to them and say, oh, that's Jesus. And um, if we believe the historical record, which could probably actually seems to make sense, if that was John, um, which disciple or future apostle was given the last 22 chapters of the Bible the deepest and fullest revelatory insight into the person and work and future of Jesus Christ then? It's the one who me loved Deep and intimate relation with him inevitably leads to revelation from him. I'll leave you with one verse. Psalm 32.8. You can look at the context and what David said about it. 
But the Lord said to David, when sin was finally confessed to him, he says, David, verse eight of Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. We all want that, right? How is he gonna guide us? He says, I will guide you with my eye. Means we're pretty close. Hard for me to look across the room at my wife right now and detect the slightest flicker that she's gonna guide me. Means there's nothing between my soul and her, nothing getting in the way, no hindrance. But it also means I'm looking and I'm hungry and I'm anticipating and I'm eager and I'm expecting. Don't be surprised, brother and sister, if we're enjoying the Lord, deep fellowship with him, day in, day out, walking with him, asking him, Lord, what do you see? Lord, what do you wanna show? If the next thing that you hear is that still small voice behind your shoulder saying, I set before you an open door. And P.S., the harvest is truly plentiful. Father, I'll just um, leave that there. Would you um, take these wonderful truths? And first of all, we just want to praise you that you are the God who sees and sees perfectly and fully. And how often we read in the Psalms, oh Lord, you know, you've seen it all. And even if I'm misunderstood, you, you understand and you see. But um, as much as we prayed last night for cold, hard hearts to become hearts full of compassion, like Christ. Um, can I equally pray here today? Yeah, in the way you want to answer it, and for whoever's here, for collectively, privately, I Lord, all of that, enlighten our eyes. We want to see Jesus. We want to see like Jesus, and we want to see what you have to show. Um, you see perfectly, Lord, and that which you want to show, we, um, we want to see, and then we want to go. So, yeah, might the entrance of your word truly bring light for each one of us here today. And um, yeah, committing that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.